I'm Felina Jean, and this is Black Broads Abroad. I'm an international woman of leisure who said peace out to the United States in 2011, and I have not looked back except at this ass, honey. Since then, I've lived on four continents with travel to over 40 countries. Along my journey, I've come to know some very compelling black women from all over the world who also said fuck you to their comfort zones. I created this podcast to inspire black women in the diaspora to take risks and live their very best lives. Kola Booth is an Egyptian Sudanese American award-winning novelist, poet, television writer, activist, and perhaps most infamously known as being romantically entangled in the life of one of America's formerly most wanted individuals, Osama bin Laden. Kola is a mother, wife, author of the forthcoming book entitled Feminist Need Dick 2, preceded by her similarly controversial work, The Sexy Part of the Bible, an autobiography entitled The Lost Girl, among many other works. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show today. Please welcome Kola. Oh, I'm so grateful to be here. I, I just love to be on stuff like this. <laughs> well, you I know, there's not so... a whole lot of us Black women who have lived all over the world, you know, who make it a point to go to other countries. So that was what interested true. me in you was that, oh, wow, here's somebody I can talk to who's kind of lived in the 90s before I had my first child. That's all I did was went from country to country. And so, <laughs> yeah, and you don't meet too many Black women who, you know, have been living that way too. So it's just, to me, that's fascinating. And it's sort of like somebody who already kind of understands your mindset. Yeah, we you definitely have to be cut a different way to embark upon right. this journey. To have that kind of adventurism, you know? Yes. So first, let me give some background about how we even came into each other's orbit recently. So I've been right. a long time admirer of yours for nearly a decade. And I find your story rather compelling and one in which you've overcome insurmountable odds from the inception right. of your life, really. And you still managed to come out on top. And so I just reached out to you over the years to check in via social media, sometimes, you know, getting a response, sometimes not. But yesterday, Girl, I hopped in your mentions and I was like, let's do this interview. And you responded affirmatively and promptly. And here we are. It's like, I think it's 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm bright. Right. Right. I'm at 5 a.m. Are you in Palm Beach? Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm in Palm Beach, Florida. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we'll get into that. Selena, you know what? Am I saying your name right? You are. Oh, okay. Felina, what I really am so happy is that you feel like I came out on top. And I just want the listeners to know I, I kind of play that role. But in reality, I am in constant therapy. I have had so much trauma in my life, you know, that. And what the thing is, is that for some reason, when you have some kind of notoriety, because I don't really think of myself as famous, I think I'm kind of infamous. But when you have notoriety, people tend to um, think you're okay and that, you know, you don't have normal problems like a normal person. I'm still getting over being raped the first night I met Osama bin Laden. 
you know, which I really usually pronounce it Osama, but the Americans, just so you'll know why I'm saying Osama, is because the American press has me so used to that now. But I always called him Osama, which I'm pretty sure being from where you've been, you would, you know, know the difference. But, um, oh my God, girl, I really suffer Uh, from nightmares. I have night terrors. I have um, mm. blackouts. I have Mm. crying spells um, because it's so lonely. It's just so people don't really think of the reality behind a story. They just think, oh, she was, um," you know, they'll say silly things like she was dating Osama Bin Laden. We didn't have dating in the Arab world. Um, That's, Mm. you know, Pretty much, I was modeling at the time in Morocco, in Rabat, Morocco, and I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He came mm. in with his men, and they just sort of took over my life. And it wasn't anything romantic or good about it. I mean, I was, I can say that he's probably the smartest, most intelligent person I've ever met in my life. I feel like if he wanted to, he could have cured AIDS. He was just a genius. But because of the culture we come from, and I'm affected by this too, because I was born Sunni Muslim in an Arab Muslim culture in Africa. Um, and he loves all things Sudan, my country, and all things mm. Africa. And that culture for me, I'm just saying me, I'm not putting down all of Islam or anything like that, but it was a very strict, psychologically terrifying uh, culture to be born into. And it can make you, especially if you're a male and you have the privileges of a male and you are able to do what you know you want to do because you're, you're from a rich family like uh, Osama was and you have power and everything, then you can become evil very easily because a lot of the things we're raised up on is this war against the white devil, which is America and all these things. And so that was in him. I didn't really know who he was at the time I was with him. He wasn't famous, you know, as a world terrorist. He was just, for me, a rich gangster Arab. And I fell into his clutches, unfortunately, and it was six months of really, really wondering what I come out of that alive. I didn't know. I didn't know if I'm going to be killed or what. Thank God I did come out. My ancestors were there with me, protecting me, and I did get out of it. He let me go. Um, He actually gave me property and jewels when I left, so I didn't leave broke. And I was able to go on with my life. But in a way, years later, when he did become famous as this horrible terrorist, then he destroyed my, it's like it boomeranged against me because that was 1996 when I was with him. It was 2003 when the world found out and it became this horrible story. The only good thing out of it was that I got to meet Whitney Houston and kind of became (laughs) chummy with her. That's the only good, because she used to call him Dracula, which to this day, would just make me laugh so hard. I could, I cried so hard the way she would call him Dracula because she didn't want to say his name. And she <laughs> was like, so girl, Dracula wanted me, huh? And, you know, she would just have me cracking up. But that's the only good thing 
that I can say, you know, I've been so maligned for it. And they don't treat a black woman in that situation the same if it's, I was a white blonde woman. Oh. I would be treated a whole different way by the media and by people. You know what I mean? I am treated like just really in a, a very negative way. And um, the only people who do sometimes lend an ear of understanding are other black women. You know, oh. when you reached out to me, there was so much love in the way that you talked to me. That made me say, this is someone you can talk to who isn't trying to make fun of you. You know what I mean? Or, you know, because I've only had one black woman who did try to make fun of me, and that was Wendy Williams. Oh, Terrible experience. I mean, that's one of the worst, because it hurts bad when it's a, a fellow sister calling you a jump off. And she was really mean to me and disrespectful. And so... I'm just so grateful to talk to someone who understands that we, none of us have to come here. This life is so unpredictable, Felina. You you plan your, your future and then life steps in and it takes you any way it wants. And you don't know what's going to happen to you. Strange, weird. When I was six years old, my birth parents were murdered in front of me. That is how uh, UNICEF wow. arranged. Yeah, that's how UNICEF arranged for me to be adopted by a Black American family. So I was adopted and went to the United States at age eight. And then as an adult, I went back to North Africa as a model. Well, really, I went to Israel first. That's where I started modeling. And But I ended up working all across North Africa. And I was in search of my roots. I mean, like any person, when you are disconnected from where you're originally from, you have a, a an obsessive interest in it. And so as an adult, I left my Black American family, went back to North Africa and spent many years there. And unfortunately, I ran into him and, you know, he pretty much has affected my life forever since. Well, I thank you, number one, and accept my apologies for, you know, uh, purporting it to be a romantic entanglement. And thank you for the clarification, because oh, I mean, yeah. it was I, was obviously <laughs> I didn't take any offense at that <laughs> situation. So thank you for that right. clarification. Um so you did mention just briefly, um, you were adopted into an African-American family when you were about six years old. Um, right. Well, I was eight. Well, My parents died when I was six, but it took about two years for okay. me to be, for UNICEF to find them. And so I was blessed because, you know, usually when you're a big kid, nobody wants you. And my father, Marvin Johnson, Black American man in Washington, D.C., he talked to my mother, who was a school teacher, and they said, we'll take the little African girl. We'll take her. And I was in London at the time. So that's a lot of love, especially when I didn't even speak English. You know what I mean? But wow. I, I was blessed, Felina. I was so blessed that was really the greatest luck of my whole life because I don't think I would have made it if they hadn't because they were really sensitive to the emotional scars and they knew this is a messed up kid. She just witnessed her parents mm. being murdered. Then I had to go through the fact I'm vaginally cut, which I didn't find mm. out until I, you know, I thought I was just a normal kid until my black American stepmother was like, what's wrong with this 
girl, she her vagina's not right, and they rushed me to D.C. General. This is my first night in America. And they mm. informed her, well, this is a ritual African thing where they, you know, cut babies, and so she's uh, infibulated. And so I hadn't, even though I was the person infibulated, I didn't even know it. You know what I mean? Wow. And so it's just been a hard life, you know, it's been really hard. And there's few people that ask you about yourself to where you can explain trauma that you've been through, really mm. hard things, you know, and I do come off as extra super strong. I come off as together and all that kind of stuff. But it's really, that's why I wrote Feminist Need Dick too, which the title is supposed to be comical. I'm not really literally saying that a woman needs a man. I'm just saying mm -hmm. for straight women feminists, that's really what I'm trying to let. That's the code of the title mm -hmm. is to let them know, okay, this is about straight women feminists. It's going to be a lot of woman, man stuff in here. And I'm in looking the book, forward to that. <laughs> oh, you're going to love it. But in I'm the book, I, and it. it's, it's available actually right now for pre-order anywhere in the world. So for people listening to this, you can go and order it online anywhere or have your local bookstore because it is in their database. You can get them to order it any place that you're at on earth. And But the book really goes through the fact that Black women suffer so many different traumas. And for some reason, especially if our skin is a little darker, if we're really Black looking, people tend to think we don't have pain. They tend to think, mm. you know what I'm saying? They don't take our lives as seriously. And so they just make a lot of jokes about it and they belittle your life and they cause you to have to fight for your life in ways you never imagined. I mean, just my whole career is a fight for my life in a way because I'm not meant to succeed or be anything. And I've just been deemed, you know, um, expendable. And so I had to find ways to survive and make something out of myself. You know what I mean? So yeah, girl. <laughs> wow, you have been so uh, you've been so maligned in the media. And I've always I'm so happy, like, you know, a decade later after I became familiar with you, I'm happy to be speaking with you because um, I think it's important that you like sharing being vulnerable is not easy to do. And I appreciate you doing that. But your oh, character yeah. has been so maligned. And I always I always think of that Nina Simone song when I think of you, Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. I feel like you're such a oh, misunderstood yeah. woman. Thank you're you. You're so misunderstood. So I really wanted to give you this opportunity to get to know you more as well. So thank you so um, much. Um, I kind of want to talk more about this book. So among your many titles, we've gone over your prolific writer and author of several books. And as you mentioned, the last one being um, Feminist Need Dick Too. Can you tell us a bit more in detail about your latest work and why this title? Okay. Um, Feminist Need Dick Too is like a feminist manifesto. It's aimed at Black women, but I think a woman of any race, any culture, will be able to uh, enjoy the book. I even think a woman who's lesbian or a transgender woman or any type of, anybody who is dealing with the adversity of womanhood and dealing with men or a society that believes you have to be with men or whatever, 
Um, or for instance, like, okay, if we're a straight woman, then they expect you to be married, you know, to get married. And that's not for everybody. You can have wonderful relationships with men. And if you don't want to get married, you shouldn't have that pressure on you. If you don't want to have children, you shouldn't have that. So I'm going to be 52 on March 3rd. And I said, what if I had a daughter? And because I have two sons, I, I have two boys, but I was never able to have a girl. I had four miscarriages and off. Well, oh. let me back up. I had three miscarriages. One of them was an abortion at 17. But all four of those were boys. So if you see, that's six boys. I would have had just boys anyway, but I kept saying, what if I had a girl what would I tell her about my journey and about what women go through? And so that's the journey of the book is, is telling you what I believe from what I've learned from the trauma I've been through from all these tribulations and really just bizarre things. Cause I seem to have a life very different from other people. Other people just have not had all these one after the other things happen to them. And so I said, well, let me really show people. Um, and I really am naked to the world in this book because I don't care. I mean, I just tell people, like I just told you about having an abortion. It's important to do that so that other women who have been through that know it's okay. You know, you don't have to beat yourself up or hate yourself or regret with, you know, that you had an abortion. I don't regret it. I feel I made the right decision at the right time. And when I was able to take care of children, I made the right decision to have my kids and take care of them. And so, you know, a lot of things like that through the journey, celebrities I've dated because I've, you know, dated a lot of uh, famous men in that way where women can say, wow, she really, really gives me the courage and also some tricks of how to make it, you know what I mean? How to get the things you want in life and just being really real with other women saying, you know, just the fact that you wake up in the morning and decide what clothes to wear and what you're going to do with your day, that's a feminist all by itself. You don't have to take the feminist, the F word, so seriously. If there is no one thing, it's whatever you want to be, whatever a woman wants to do with herself, whatever she envisions, that is feminism. And you may want to be an old Quaker wife who's you know, totally uh, <laughs> there for your man. I 100% uh, support that. I support anything that the woman is happy with and she's consenting to. If you consent to that and you're like, Cola, girl, I'm happy. This is my type of happiness. I'm with you 100%. You know what I mean? I love to cook. I'm a feminist who cooking is my therapy and I love cooking. But I don't expect other women to say, well, I want to be a cook. Sometimes the man is the cook. So it's just a very interesting book that I think what makes it special, though, is the rawness of the um, experiences I've been through that I share with people really everything about my life and why it's wonderful to be a woman and why women have to fight for our rights. You know, we should be paid equal. We should be respected when we say no. No is a whole sentence. You know what I mean? That is 
the bottom line. And so just empowering women in a real way, you know, not in a, this will be very deep because I warn you, there's a lot of stuff in here that I go through that um, you're going to be like, oh my God, this chapter is just like, oh God, (laughs) you know, and at times in the book, it may seem like I hate men, but I don't. That's just in that chapter, I'm talking about a specific man who he pissed me off. So it's just him. And then you get to the next chapter and you're like, okay, now she's back in love. You know, it's a real, real, real uh, deep book. And you're a Pisces, right? Right. You can oh, tell. you guys are always <laughs> in love. <laughs> Oh my God. And overly sensitive. Overly, we overly sensitive. Yeah, I know Pisces very well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm the uh, classic Pisces. <laughs> so, UK, you kind of brought up relationships because you said this is a no holds bar interview. So I can ask you anything. So, right. oh, yeah, And I don't call, I don't say, I'll use the word sister lightly. <laughs> sister, listen. <laughs> I remember, I don't know how many years ago, but I saw you drag a bitch for filth online about 10 years ago. And I just sat back and I said, this is the most eloquent savagery I have ever borne witness to. (laughs) See, that's what I meant when you read the book, be ready. (laughs) Girl, I will never forget it. You read Kamora Lee Simmons literally from A to oh, Z, yeah. literally right. using every right. letter in the alphabet. Do you know they spell right. that shit from the internet? You can't even find it no more. <laughs> I you know. Can't even find she, it no more. Her people, her people got on and she paid them to get Take that it out there. of there. Oh, I hope yeah. you have that say mm-hmm. somewhere because that was well, bold. you know, that was really a painful thing because what really happened that people don't understand because everybody hated me saying, oh, she's over here messing up somebody's marriage. He was my man first. That's what people don't understand. I had brain cancer in 2008 and was treated at Loma Linda, which has Loma Linda, if you don't know, has a very special protons department that deals with just brain cancer. And I agreed to be experimented on because I was going to die anyway, we all thought. And so they experimented and were able to actually Totally. It turned out I just had uh, chalazons on the outside of my cranial. And so they were able to save my life. But when they were when they wheeled me in, Kamora, who had been my friend, not his, she was my friend. I'm the person that taught her how to play spades. Just loved her. In fact, she and I even had a sexual event happened one time. I'm not bisexual oh. or lesbian. Right. We did because Kimora is. And so she sort of convinced me to try it. And me and her tried it. And it went really bad. But um, she was my friend, not his. But when they wheeled me in for this uh, laser, she told me that, well, when you come back out, Simon's not going to be with you anymore. He's going to be with me. And so, I mean, that was, I was devastated. Felina, I wanted to die right wow. then. I mean, I felt so betrayed and I just felt like they had just stabbed me in the pack. And I should have saw the signs coming because he used to say things like, um, well, I can't take um, 
Christy Brinkley's man, but I could take just about any black woman's man. I mean, she would say stuff, not realizing, I don't know, she just had this thing where she was on that whole continuum of colorism and stuff. Um, it was innocent, though. It was like she didn't realize that, you know, and because she was my friend, I totally was okay with her and forgave her, as we often do with people that we think are outsiders of our community who don't mean any harm. That's how we're thinking. But when she told me that he wouldn't be there for me anymore, and then when I actually didn't die and came back out, and saw he wasn't, I decided right then and there, I was going to show her what a black woman can do. And I've written and told people that many times people still blame me, still hate me, because for some reason, it's okay if you take a man from a black woman. It's like she deserved it. She deserved to have her man took. But if a black woman take a man from a white woman or an Asian woman or a Latina, we are just evil. And that was the whole real thing, if you want my opinion of that whole issue. So that two was the things. Whole thing First, we're qualifying what you're talking about is Dijiman. What's, how's, what's his last name? Hassoon? Hansu. Hansu. Okay. I say it wrong, too, all the time. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not West African. I'm North African. But it's right. Hansu. It's Shaiman Hansu. And he's one of the best lovers I ever had, but he's so colorful. He's so, I would never want him, you know? That's what people were also mad about is why would you break up their marriage and they have kids and stuff and you didn't even want them, you know? But I broke it up just to prove to her that I'm a woman of my word. I told her, you and him will not make it because I will personally destroy it. And that's what I did. And as you said, I was really open about it. I didn't hide it. I didn't try to play angel girl or anything. I was upfront and out in public with it. Well, the second question. Now, do you think that somebody can take your man? Because that's it. Can somebody right. take your man or do they leave? I think really they leave. And I, if I'm honest, like I said, I accused saying she took him. But what it really was is that he was already wanting to go. He was already, I mean, I was sickly. Here I am with brain cancer. Um, there's too much work with somebody like that. Um, and then he was just plain old color struck too. No matter how attractive I felt I was, I still wasn't light enough. I wasn't white. I wasn't, because, you know, he eventually became with a white woman, which is the main thing he dates. And always did date. In fact, I, when he left a white girl, he came with me. So that was, you know, his whole thing has really been white women. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I, you're right. It's not so much that Kamora took him. It's just that he was fresh for the taking. Let's put it that way. He was ready to go. And the thing is, though, she's my friend. I felt like as my friend, even if he wanted you out of loyalty to me, because that's right. how I am. If I'm your friend and your man is interested in me, there's no way he can forget it because I'm your friend. But see, she didn't have the same thing. Her thing was, I'll never forget being, you know, wheeled in to have anesthesia and being told by her right before that, that when you come back out, he won't be here. 
he'll, he's going to be with me now. And he's scared to tell you he don't want to hurt you. And so I told him I would tell you. You know what I mean? But That's cold-blooded. Right. And I'm glad you see it that way because people don't. A lot of people feel like um, I'm just an evil person for what I did for deliberately, uh, you know, blowing up her marriage the way I did. And they, if you remember a few weeks after the new, the New York daily news, which that is still online, the story about is in there, the New York daily news about a week after Russell Simmons offered me money to try to get me to shut up because they did two different stories. on. Well, girl, did you take the money? I hope you took the money. No, I didn't take it because I told the newspaper that he had offered me that and that, no, I wasn't, I was going to, you know, keep uh, saying what was happening. But um, it was so much court stuff involved, Felina, that I couldn't have took it because then that could have got me in trouble. And so I didn't do, and then there was other people who thought me and Kamora schemed this whole thing so Jonathan wouldn't have to pay her alimony. So that she wouldn't have to pay him alimony. Because if you remember, see, three weeks after I've made all this public in the New York Daily News, they went on and filed for divorce three weeks later. She filed for divorce. And everybody was saying this was cooked up by Cola and Kamora so that Kamora wouldn't have to pay him any alimony. But that's not what it was. Were they legally married? I thought they got married in Africa. Right. They weren't legally. But um, in California, it's considered it, it in California it would be considered just like it was legal so they had to do everything by the book but no they never were legally married in fact there's a white French woman uh that he's actually married to who is like 20 or 30 years older than him and that was from his modeling days before he came to America and that's his only real legal wife I don't know. She might have died by now, but at the time, that was his own his only real legal wife. Yeah, girl, they they did scrub all that from the internet. I but the they New York Daily it. News, right? The New York Daily News reports though are still up there. I hope you, you wanna... still have that because that needs to be archived. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you have it somewhere. I've it's never seen le- nothing like it, it before or since. <laughs> a yeah, to me Z. and her was me and her really were not. Oh God, I was so angry at her, and still am. I'm still. I just have never experienced that with a black woman. Somebody's claiming to be a sister. I've never experienced someone who will eat your food, uh, get you to kiss, and have a, a incident with them, even though you're not. Because I'm really not bisexual, but. I went there and I, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that lifestyle or anything. So that's why I don't even try to deny it or hide it or whatever. But I just felt like she had done so much to me to do something like that. It's like, you just going to humiliate me and, and treat me like shit and go be with my man. Even if he don't want me, you shouldn't take him. you know, so it was good. It was just something else. But that's well, you brought up your modeling days. I'm I'm sorry to make right. a segue. You brought up your your modeling days, and I'm kind of fascinated to know, like, what were your twenties like? Because you mentioned being in Israel and Morocco, and 
before this, you know, incident with Osama bin Laden happened, what was your life right. like BC um, or BR right, before? Right. <laughs> um, let me say it was pretty good. I thought I was still traumatized from my childhood, but I was, and I hated modeling, but I loved the money and I loved traveling. And so those were two wonderful things was because it was like a new world. I was going to Milan. I was going to Paris. I was going places. I had money now for nothing. And my mind modeling is the stupidest job in the world. It was just like they're giving me all this money just to stay skinny and wear this stupid outfit. The clothes were just out atrocious. And we just hung around all day, a bunch of women just uh, posing and walking and you know, it was fun. It was like being really free and um, not too much bad stuff was going on with me. Um, before that, I had had the abortion at 17, um, which it wasn't the worst experience, but it's never fun to have an abortion. But I think that's like the worst thing that really happened to me. And um, my Black American family was trying to put my boyfriend in prison for a statutory rape because it was a black Amer- American guy who had been paid to tutor me. And I was only 14 when the tutoring started, but I liked him and I ended up losing my virginity virginity to him when I was 17 years old. And they tried to put him in prison cause I was underage, which is how I actually became a model. Cause I ran away from home so that I wouldn't have to testify. Cause if I testified, that would be the only thing that could put him in prison. So I purposely ran away and I ran to Fairfax, Virginia. And that's where I became involved with this white man who uh, was married. And um, I pretty much became kept by him. And he is the person that got me pregnant that I said, I can't have a baby by him. And um, I had an abortion. So that was like the worst thing that had happened to me. But it was a lot of good times in there because that was when I left him and went to Israel. And then all the modeling, <coughs> excuse me, my voice is bad because I have a cold, but I'm okay. But anyway, all the modeling and all that kind of stuff. Uh, took off and it was like being in another world. I just thank God I didn't get on drugs because I think it would have ended so much differently. A lot of the girls were on cocaine and stuff like, well, the white girls were. None of us three black girls that were in my touring group, none of us did hard drugs. I didn't even do weed. The other two girls did, but that was as far as they would go would be weed. And um, But a lot of the girls got on seriously hard drugs, and they ended up either dead, um, they married rich guys, and became like, just let their looks go and stuff. You know, it was just a crazy time, but it was a good time. It was adventurous and fun. And I recommend, I always tell Black women, even if it's only 50 miles to the next town, travel travel because you don't you'll get so many things that you wouldn't normally get out of life i've been married twice felina and both of my husbands are both millionaires that would only happen because i traveled around the world so much and i keep telling other black women it can happen to you too if you have if you let your adventurous side go let yourself go and and just trust in yourself believe in yourself 
have your rules that you have and, you know, go around and see what this world is like. So I was actually doing that at a really young age. 17 is when I started. I was out there. And so, you know, I did get in big trouble with Osama bin Laden. But other than that, I really enjoyed a lot of what I did. Yeah, it sounds like you lived in your 20s, which I encourage right. all young women. <laughs> it's the time to live. It really is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what, so what countries have you actually resided in? Okay, I lived in Sweden, which was my favorite, but it's just too cold there. So I couldn't stay because it's too cold. Um, I worked in uh, Port Columbine. I never can say the name of this town where I lived in Canada, but Port Columbine. Anyway, the Canadian oil company is there. And I lived in uh, Morocco. I lived in Greece. I lived in Israel. Israel right now is my second home. Um, I've been to so many countries. I have to remember which ones I lived in. How does a, you're Muslim, correct? Or you were born Muslim? How did you I was born Muslim. Okay. Yeah. So how did Israel become your second home? Because when I, well, okay, first of all, let's go back. I had very bad experiences as a Muslim. That's one of the reasons, another reason people hate me is because I'm, to them, I'm always downing Islam. So I don't have any love for Islam, you know, for, especially for Arab Islam. I have a lot more uh, patience with African Islam, but Arab Islam, I just have no love for. But anyway, my black American family, they're Christian. So I was actually from age eight up raised as a Baptist. So I went from a Sunni Muslim to a Baptist. And then as an adult, I became Hika, which is an ancient sort of women's religion. Uh, It was Egypt's first religion, actually. And it's sort of like the North African voodoo is what people would, you know. But Hika is about love and it's about centering the woman's menstrual cycle. And it's just a, a very womanist religion. And so Israel uh, became my love because they were the first ones to publish me. Um, Israel was where I got my modeling career started in um, Haifa. And so I had a lot of good luck in Israel when I was 17 years old. I worked at a restaurant where this man was um, selling people uh, exotic meats, but it was really chicken. And so that was so funny to me. I wrote a whole essay about that. <laughs> You know, telling them that they're eating antelope and all this, but it was really chicken. And so I kind of outed him because I wrote an essay about how crazy that was. And um, that was really the thing. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't go through racism in Israel because I definitely experienced white, bigoted, racist Jews. There's no way to deny it. That was just, they were there. But there were a lot of other Jewish people who were really good to me. And to this day, I have a lot of friends who happen to be Jewish and Israeli. I also have Muslim friends. So my brother, one of my brothers, who's really close to me is Muslim. And so, you know, I hate that people have this image that I hate Muslims. I don't hate Muslims, especially Muslim women. I just want to fight for more rights for Muslim women. That's my thing. It's not that I hate 
Muslims. I just want things that I witnessed in Sudan, like women being beaten for wearing pants or put in prison 20 years for laughing at a man. I just think that these are very archaic rules and also especially being vaginally cut. Um, I had my very first period through a straw, Felina. And that is degrading, dehumanizing. It's horrible. No woman should ever have her body, her genitals fixed to where it doesn't serve her. It serves men. And that is my whole fight, my whole beef with the fact that I'm from an Islamic country because I'm from North Sudan. I'm from Omdurman, which is the most Islamic city in Sudan. My father was an Sunni Muslim, and he was actually Arab. He was not uh, Black African. My mother was Black African. My mother was jet black. She was charcoal black. Um, But my father purchased her when she was 14. He purchased Purchased? her. Yes, bought her from her father. Oh, like a dowry. Like a dowry. Right, right. Okay. He bought her from her father. But I believe in a dowry. I wish I would have had a dowry when I got married the first time. I know. It's certain things, too, and I do understand what you're saying. But, you know, a lot of people in the West, when we talk about that, they don't really know the dynamics. So it sounds like slavery to them. It's hard to express it. In a way, it is for women who don't have any rights, like my mother didn't, because, you know, she never spoke to him, her own husband. She didn't speak to him because he was Arab. And, you know, yeah, she wouldn't speak to him. And they were married and had kids and everything. And, you know, it wasn't her choice. And so that's what I regret is that she died so young because she was murdered for being with him. He He was the political activist who spoke out against slavery in Sudan. And that's why they killed my parents in front of me. They let me live. Wow. But they could have killed me, too. They just decided wow. to let the, the kid live. But. It was terrible. It was just the worst. And I stayed with the bodies overnight, that whole night. You know, people don't understand me. Like you said, I think I am really misunderstood. You know, people don't understand trauma and what people will do to survive. And that, I mean, if you can respect Islam, because, hey, these are brothers and, you know, all the things that, you know, why can't you respect an African woman's survival? Why can't you respect that I'm out here trying to survive? Why am I demonized and made to be this evil being? Felina, I felt like as a black woman, because I kept going through this in America where people think you can just do anything to a black woman. You know, uh, men disrespect us. Men disrespect and talk about our bodies and talk about us like that's all we are as a body. Is there anything else that you would like to publicly clear up that Um, you haven't had an opportunity to do? (laughs) I know a lot of fans in South Africa watch Days of Our Lives, soap opera that I used to write for, and they always write me saying, why don't you come back to the show? And that was one of the things that the Osama bin Laden scandal messed up and got me fired for was the sponsors. It happened to be Tide Detergent and Jif Peanut Butter. 
that said, we're not going to sponsor the show if you keep her on because we don't believe it was against her will. We believe she's a Muslim still and she wanted to be with Bin Laden. And so I got fired by NBC from the show. And um, I am never going to be coming back to the show, but um, I just wanted fans to know what actually happened. This is what I mean when I tell you that being with him in 1996 sort of reverberated later in my life and was like a boomerang that just messed up a lot of opportunities for me. And in America, they really hate this man and they take it seriously. And so I became just so despised and hated over him. You know Do what you I mean? Do you feel like you've and been blackballed? Have you been blackballed? I definitely, I definitely have. I definitely have. But it's real deep because, see, it involves the United States uh, security agencies, the FBI, the CIA. They were the ones who put me on all of the media. I went on MSNBC. I was interviewed by CNN, Fox News, New York Times. All these people did stories about me. And I really didn't understand what I was doing. You know, I didn't understand how I could be used in ways I don't want to be used. And so in the middle of all that, I just dropped it and refused to cooperate. And so the FBI and them turned on me. And when they turn on you, they don't tell you they're going to turn on you. They don't warn you that, hey, you better do this or that. They're like, okay, she's not doing what we want, so we'll fix it so that things don't go good for her. And so they can really make your life miserable. They can really torment and harass you and pay agencies and pay other groups to do things. And so a lot of opportunities. People have told me, Felina, it's not in my mind. People have told me, well, I got a call from the FBI and unfortunately we decided we're not going to be able to deal with you or work with you. And, you know, these were black people who wanted to work with me. But like they said, when the FBI calls and the CIA calls, when they put out the word, don't touch this person you go through some now there's some people and there's some situations that they don't care they ignore uh and that is how i've been able to survive there's always that somebody on the fringe who is anti-fbi anti-cia and they aren't going to deal with them you know what i mean so it's been a hard row um it seems like the blacklisting has let up some I could be wrong, but it seems like I'm less blacklisted than I was, say, 10 years ago. It's not as bad. More things, it's like people who wouldn't return my calls 10 years ago, now they are. So it's making me feel like, well, okay, maybe um, things are getting better for you. Maybe you should. But no matter, even if it was at the worst right now, blacklisting, I still have to do my work as an artist. I have to do it because I'm going to die anyway. I mean, I'm 52 now. I'm not going to be young forever. You have to get out there and do, even if no one's noticing, even if no one cares, if no one supports you, you still have to do it. So I would still be doing it, even if I didn't have any kind of a way to, you know, do what I'm doing. But I can tell you that in America, things have started to ease up on me in the last five years. If you can, I can really feel it. 
you know. And luckily, mm. during the time I was blacklisted, I was married to a rich man who happened to be white and Jewish. So I've been living well. I live in a beautiful mansion in Palm Beach. I am not hungry. I'm not, you know, so I live well. I just want my career more than anything. And that's the hardest thing to do is have my career. Another reason I wrote a book that I said, well, since my main audience of supporters are black women, let me write directly to them and something honest about my life that they can relate to and that will empower them and help them as well. And, you know, so that's why instead of coming with a novel, I said, let me come out with a sort of a girlfriend book. Manifesto. (laughs) Right. And and self-help, you know. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have for Black women that are actually thinking about leaving the divided states in pursuit of something different, like whether it's long-term or sabbatical? I'm on Twitter all the time telling Black women that if you have the means to leave, you should. You should go just for the invigoration and the challenge. Because you're challenging yourself, your worst fears, everything, to go abroad. And you never know, something really good could happen to you. I think something, it's more likely something good will happen to you than something awfully bad. I think, I mean, now right now we're in a pandemic, so I'm not telling people to go right now. But I always tell Black women, um, and we just had this conversation recently because I was telling them real details about countries and things, and that it's good to just go see another world that's not your world. It's good to go see people different from you because then you find out we're all the same. And you find out a lot of different things. And especially because we have such a hard time finding a man in America. Like I tell them, the only reason I married two rich men is because I was a constant traveler. I met my first husband who's black in England. And he's an American. He lives in America. At least he's Belizean, but he was living in America. He went to London because we had had a like fling in California. And I left and went to England. And so he followed me to England. And that's the only reason I have these men is because I'm dealing with men who are kind of like they move around. And so I just, you know, always tell them there's so, and it's not just about men, of course. It's just about finding, finding out secrets about yourself you didn't know. Finding out things you may have found out your favorite food is actually in Greece. And it's, you know, and you learn how to make that dish while you're in Greece because you want to know how to make it, you know, and it's all kind of things. And our life is not just about having a man or having children. So that's why I tell them you need to go abroad just for the experience. You can always come back home. But the thing is that, you know, go out and have an experience and don't be afraid. And I don't know. The capitalism here is getting worse, Selena. This is becoming a fascist, totalitarian country. 100%. Yeah, it is. Shifting from like a corporatocracy to a fascist government because it's not a democracy. (laughs) Right, exactly. You said it. And let me tell you, 10 years ago, I would have probably considered myself capitalist. Now, I am so ashamed that I was ever so stupid. 
not to see what this system does to people and how it's crushing the world. It's just evil what's going on in I America. Think they, I think it's like we're like experiencing a shift into like digital dictatorship. It'll be, yeah, that's a whole other conversation, though. But yeah, things are changing. These are interesting times to be alive. You know, I know you must be familiar with Octavia Butler. Oh, yeah. Uh, Do you know she predicted this? She predicted this. In one of her books, she talked about 2020. Yeah, uh, a pandemic. Yeah, she predicted this moment. Not only that, she predicted Trump. She predicted like, yeah, predicted a fascist government. Oh yes, yes. Wow, it's crazy. It's really see that's another one of the main because how did you trip and hit your head on a rock and you just dead all of a sudden? Exactly. That was suspicious to me. That was a bit suspicious to oh me. My God. I mean, I don't have any empirical evidence, obviously, but well, I thought that do. was suspicious. Let me just tell you, I totally have always believed the government killed her. That's just what I believe. I don't. I have no proof. I don't have no anything. But girl, I I think the government. I I really do. I believe it, and I know it sounds like why. Of course, a lot of it is because I'm paranoid about the government because I have really experienced firsthand dealing with them and how crooked and and evil they are and what they will go to to silence you. And so I have no doubt in my mind because she was telling a lot of stuff. When you said her name, it just went through all through me because Parable of the Sower, that book, details what we're going through right now right now right specifically it was 2020 2020 wow she was something (laughs) yeah she's really really a genius a genius and i miss her so much and it's a tragedy that she just had some kind of ridiculous accident and people aren't even suspicious that will bother me you're the first person who actually said, I don't think this was normal, you know, and I'm just admitting in my mind. I mean, mind it deserves that I could to be, be looked into. I could be so I, I could be so We wrong. could be. I'm just saying. But they have a, but they have a history of, right. you know, of, yeah. Oh, yeah. James Baldwin, so, Carlos Fuentes, Ernest Hemingway, all of these people, they have it on record that they admit that they targeted and harassed those people for years. Writers. So why wouldn't they hurt her? Maybe they didn't mean to kill her, but I think they did. I just think they did it. And I could be wrong. Like I said, for your listeners, please don't think Cola crazy. I'm not usually a conspiracy theorist, but I've been through so much with the government in America until I just don't doubt it. To me, this is the new East Germany. Oh, wow. (laughs) It is. Girl, I felt that. Wow, yeah. really? It is. It is here. It really, America is, is like, I don't know what's going to happen. I hope it gets better, but it's just, it's even with Biden, and it still seems bad to me. I, I don't feel the change that we've been promised. 
you know. Yeah. But like I said, do you see yourself? I don't know. I, I could be wrong. I don't know. Do you do you see yourself like staying there? Would you leave the country and like live overseas again? Or are you I committed would. to? No, I would leave if they would let me. That's number one. Because right now I'm not allowed. You know, I was on the um, terrorist list as a suspected terrorist. Which oh, of course my I'm gosh. Not. Yeah, I'm, well, that see, is I'm so crazy. It is. Because I'm the most harmless person you could ever find. But if you knew, let me tell you, just to put it into perspective, the woman that babysitted Osama bin Laden, babysitted him when he was seven. They have her on the suspected terrorist list just for babysitting them. Wow. So, you know, that's what people don't understand when you hate people like me who have done nothing. I didn't want to meet him. He took over my life for six months. I had no interest in him. But when you're hating on people like we're suffering, we're already on lists and being watched and being uh, listened to and everything, anybody. We're going through pure hell anyway. And so, you know, I, I, I try, though, not to let it make me crazy. I try not to, you know, that's what I'm worried about right now, talking to you in the interview. I'm not scared of the government in any way, but I don't also want to let them make me sound like I'm mentally off. Because right. I don't really know. I don't have proof. I don't have proof that anything. But what I'm telling you is my gut feeling. I feel like I'm in East Germany. That's how I feel. Wow. Um, yeah. Because remember, I had to deal directly face to face with these people. I'm not talking about anyway, being Florida like, too. Right. I'm not talking about being in the Black Panthers or something. And they are like a uh, distant thing. I'm talking about I've been in the same room with these people telling me what to do when I was on Fox News, when I was on MSNBC. They coached me for my interviews. They wanted me to make Osama bin Laden sound like um, Dracula, like an evil, you know, demon. And in many ways, he really was. But they didn't want me to talk about his poetry. They didn't want me to talk about the fact that every time he ordered someone killed, he cried. He was very soft-spoken. He was not someone who ever yelled. He didn't yell. He was extremely lethal and soft-spoken and calm. And so they didn't want me to talk about any of that, anything that would humanize him to people. They didn't want me to discuss that in the interviews. And when somebody hit me to the fact of, do you know who the FBI is? You know, you're an African girl, so you're not realizing who these people are. They killed Malcolm X. They killed everybody you love. They have been surveillancing and killing people. So that's when I stopped participating in what they had me doing, Felina. And, and now I paid a huge price because things were going so good for me when I was participating. I was getting all kind of big money offers, deals, everything. And then it all stopped the minute I told them that, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to just fade to the background. I don't want to, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Because I felt like a fish out of water. Like, you really don't know this country. You were raised in America, but you don't know much about it. I, and I didn't. I didn't know the government. I didn't know none of this kind of... I was, wasn't even a political person, Feline. I didn't care who the president was before 
um, all this happened. I had no interest in politics. Like I told you, back then I would have just said I was a capitalist, regular black girl, a Democrat, because my family is Democrat. That's as far as I knew. I didn't know anything. And so I was ignorant and I realized they're taking advantage of you. They're going to probably try to make you into a spy or a, um informant or something. And that's why I had to get out of it because they did seem sinister to me. I can't put my finger on it. It's not like they did anything directly to me, but they seemed almost like reptiles. They were just cold people. They were not good people in my mind. And that's why I had to pull out of it. And ever since I have really been tortured over it. I mean, they have made my life hell, but I can't prove it. My question is, are they even people? And that's a whole other story. Because if somebody funded my PhD right now, (laughs) if somebody funded my PhD right now, I would write write a dissertation to prove my point. I'm not, I'm not convinced of, um, I'm not convinced on everyone on this earth's humanity. Let me just put it like that. Right. Okay. I don't have proof of anything. I'm just telling y'all my gut feeling. It's like, you know, I felt like these were reptiles I was talking to. I felt like I'm in East Germany. I felt like something was wrong. And my ancestors were telling me, get out of this. Get, you know, even if they're going to, you know, what I'm going through now of being like sort of maligned, it's better to go through that than to, than to sell your soul. And so that's my whole, what I'm trying to get on. And I know black women understand what I'm saying. I just, you know, don't want to sound crazy though, like a conspiracy theorist. You won't sound crazy to my audience, girl. (laughs) My audience is black women. (laughs) It's full black women. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sad. It's sad that it's like this. You know, you think the richest country in the world, they could afford to have a heart. You know what I mean? You would think that you could afford to be a good person. Why become so evil when you have everything and the rest of the world is starving? It's just, there's something not right about it. At all. So my last question is, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned about stepping outside of your comfort zone? It may not sit well with people, but the biggest lesson I've learned is that the truth does not set you free. It does not set you free. That We love to say that. Everybody loves to say the truth sets you free. But I have personally found that the truth can cause you to be persecuted, lied on, and silenced. You know, it, it can make you invisible. You know, um, it depends on if the world wants your truth. Um, maybe in personal one-on-one situations, that, that's true, the truth sets you free. But as a public figure, somebody who really did tell the truth and then was totally painted as this evil, uh, don't trust her, uh, just everything they can do to a black woman, um, I found out that the truth really, if it's not what the, if the truth is not what the public wants to hear, they're not going to be happy about it. People don't always want the truth. That's what I found out. I thought people cared about the truth, but most people want the fantasy. They want you to make up a story that they're comfortable with, that, that uh, co-signs what they already believe about certain things. And unfortunately, I 
really offended a lot of white Americans with my book, Diary of a Lost Girl, which is my autobiography, because I really ignorantly, well, not ignorantly, but I was naive. And I talked about a lot of bad things about America, not realizing how that white people would be offended. And then to come and add Osama bin Laden to that, it just made me totally everything they hate. And in my autobiography, you know, I really told the whole full picture of him, not just the demonic part, but the fact that he has beauty to him. He has a lot of, well, he's dead now. And he was a nightmare. I still have nightmares about him. But he was a very intricate person. He wasn't just a one-note character. He was extremely gifted, but he just was deformed. His mind was deformed. But he was a gifted human being as far as, like I said, I believe he was so brilliant that if he wanted to, he could have cured cancer. If he wanted to use his power for good instead of for evil. And, you know... It's so much debatable, but, you know, when people read my autobiography or read my books and they read between the lines and see what I'm really saying, and they're like, okay, now I get what she's saying. Um, But it's been a hard road, Felina. It's been a hard road. I love you so much, sis, just for being kind to me and just for respecting me and treating me like a person. You invited me on here to have my say, and I just appreciate you so much. It's nothing like a sister. There is just nothing on earth. And being African women, Black American women, it don't matter where you are on earth. That's what I try to tell Black American women. We're treated like nothing, no matter where you go. We're the nappy-headed one, the dark-skinned one, no matter where you go. We're the one who, you know, any little thing we do, they blow it out of proportion to be this, that. We don't get the same And I'm not saying other women don't suffer. Of course, white women and all other kind of women suffer too. But I'm just saying there is something that is uniquely oppressive aimed at black women. And I don't try to hide it. I just talk about it and tell people that, look, we aren't treated the same. That's what the problem is. That's why we can't act like we are is because we aren't, we aren't treated the same. And, um, A lot of my books highlight that in the writing, and I'm not trying to start things like white people think. I'm just telling the true experience of the hardship that Black women go through no matter where they are in this world. Just because they're living in America don't make it like they have it made. No, you know. But to answer your question, because I talk so much, I know. But to answer your question, I'm enjoying every word. Right, so. <laughs> I really feel like I really feel like the truth does not set you free. And I know a lot of people will feel like, "Whoa, I don't agree with that." But I'm just telling you my personal belief from what I have been through of telling the truth in public, telling very ugly, hard truths, and it never. It don't set me free. It just makes things worse. It makes me feel like, you know, just shut up. But then I can't shut up. Well, you shouldn't. Keep talking. <laughs> and I'm Thank glad you that you so come much. out. I'm, 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 I'm glad that you come out with this new book. Where can people buy it and let people know where they could keep up with your journey on social media? Oh, yeah. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook. And then Feminist Need Dick 2 comes out April 7th. 
but it's available now for pre-order anywhere in the world. You can get it. You can get to a local bookstore to order it. It's in their database. doesn't matter what country you're in. And you can order it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Kobo or any of the online retailers. It's in every corner of the world. You can order it anywhere. So feminists need Dixie. You can pre-order it now. But it comes out April 7th. Shout out to our Patreon members for your support. If you too are interested in joining the Black Broads Abroad movement, you can follow us on social media and that's B-L-A-C-K-B-R-O-A-D-S. That's on Instagram and Facebook. And if you'd like to become a supporter on Patreon, you can do so on patreon.com backslash Black Broads Abroad. <laughs> <laughs>